0: So we open God's word together this afternoon. Our New Testament scripture reading, which I neglected to put in the bulletin, is from Matthew chapter four. Matthew four, we read the first 11 verses where the tempter seeks to seduce Christ into taking a shortcut to uh, skipping the cross in order to seize the crown. We'll see later how this uh, fits in with Job. The temptations of his friends, but first we'll read Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. This is just after Jesus' baptism. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. And when the tempter came to him, he said, "'If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread.' But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you. And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone." Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him. Behold, angels came and ministered to him. You can turn to Job chapter 8. Job 8, our fifth sermon through the book of Job. Uh, Last week we heard Job's response to Eliphaz in chapter 6, and then his lament to God in chapter 7. Uh, now his friend Bildad takes the mic and uh, presents to us what have called the gospel according to Bildad, beginning at 8 verse 1. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, How long will you speak these things? And the words of your mouth be like a strong wind. Does God subvert judgment? Or does the Almighty pervert justice? If your sons have sinned against Him, He has cast them away for their transgression. If you would earnestly seek God and make your supplication to the Almighty, if you were pure and upright, surely now He would awake for you and prosper your rightful dwelling place. Though your beginning was small, yet your latter end would increase abundantly. For inquire, please, of the former age, and consider the things discovered by their fathers. For we were born yesterday, and know nothing because our days on Earth are a shadow. Will they not teach you and tell you and utter words from their hearts? Can the papyrus grow up without a marsh? Can the reeds flourish without water? While, well, it is yet green and not cut down, it withers before any other plant. So are the paths of all who forget God. And the hope of the hypocrite shall perish, whose confidence shall be cut off, and those whose trust is a spider's web. He leans on his house, but it does not stand. He holds it fast, but it does not endure. He grows green in the sun, and his branches spread out in his garden. His roots wrap around the rock heap and look for a place in the stones. If he is destroyed from his place, then it will deny him, saying, I have not seen you. Behold, this is the joy of his way, and out of the earth others will grow. Behold, God will not cast away the blameless, nor will he uphold the evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughing and your lips with rejoicing. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame the dwelling place of the wicked, will come to nothing. Variation in the 1560 Geneva Bible, the prologue to the book of Job says, In this book is set before us an example of singular patience. For this holy man Job, it says, was not only extremely afflicted in outward things and in his body but also in his mind and conscience by the sharp temptations of his wife and chief friends which by their vehement words and subtle disputations brought him almost to despair coming to him under pretense of consolation yet tormenting him more than all his affliction I don't know if that's exactly true that The most painful part of Job's affliction was the counsel of his friends, but as we read Bildad's speech, we can certainly imagine how painful it must have been to have one of your closest friends come and tell you after the death of your child that it was their fault and they got what was coming to them, and then accuse you of sin, call you a hypocrite and say, repent or the same will happen to you. Can you imagine what that would be like? Adding just one more layer to Job's suffering, which as we've seen throughout the last several weeks is a shadow of Christ's suffering. Job in his suffering prefigures the gospel, but Bildad in his bad counsel by which he beats Job down denies the gospel. It ends up offering a different one altogether. The gospel according to Bildad. so we consider that gospel this afternoon, I want you to, to look first with me at the point of Bildad's speech before we consider its problem. Its uh, basic point is is stated as a question in verse 3. That the, the basic point of Bildad's speech is that God is not unjust. He does not subvert judgment or pervert Justice, but is perfectly righteous. Abildad is jealous to maintain divine justice. That's why he's so angry in verse two when he insults Job and says, how long will windy words come out of your mouth? He is jealous to defend God's justice. And so his main point is verse three, God is not unjust, which implies verse four, that Job's children who have been taken away have sinned. And verse 4 may say, if, um, if your sons have sinned against him, but there's nothing theoretical about Bildad's assertion. He is stating as a fact that God's justice has been demonstrated in the death of Job's 10 children who obviously have sinned. Like Eliphaz before him, he has no category for righteous suffering. And so his only explanation for the tragic death of Job's children is that they must have sinned. Tornadoes don't just knock down houses, not of the righteous, but God is just. And so they must have been sinning, perhaps even sinning during the feast that they were holding when the roof fell down. Remember how Job was always a bit anxious about his children's feast. We see that in Job 1 verse 5. Perhaps Bildad knew this. Perhaps Bildad knew how Job would go and offer sacrifices on behalf of his children just in case they had sinned against God in their heart during these feasts. And so he insists that they must have been sinning during the feast. And that Job's sacrificial offerings, which he would make for his children, were not effective that implies that they were sinning during the feast and says he has no room for a mediator like Eliphaz, no room for sacrifice. He denies the possibility of God having forgiven their sins on the basis of blood sacrifice. They sinned, so God judged them. Then after that, he, he gets to his point. Just as your children got what they deserved, Job, you will too unless you Repent. He was using Job's children as a sort of parable to say, verse 5, you better seek God unlike them if you don't want to be taken away for your transgression. Your children got what they deserved, and you will too, unless you repent. That's what he means by seek God in verse 5 and make supplication to him. He's basically saying seek God in prayer, be religious. Confess any sins that you have and be pure and upright. And if you are, verse 6, then he will prosper your rightful dwelling. And though your beginning be small, your latter end will increase abundantly. Seek God and you will prosper. That's the application of his main point that God is not unjust. Because he isn't, if you follow him, he will make you healthy and wealthy. And that's a promise. So name it and claim it, Job. And believe me, this isn't just coming from from me, myself, but inquire of bygone ages, and you will see our fathers have discovered the same. Tradition tells us this is the way things work. Notice Bildad's main proof for his, his main thesis and his sermonic application is tradition. Everything he's just said is backed up by what other men who have gone before him have said. Remember in chapter 4, Eliphaz appealed to personal observation. He even appealed to a spiritual experience. God told me, God showed me in a vision. And now Bildad appeals to the tradition of the fathers. For we were born yesterday, he says, and know nothing for our days on earth are but a shadow, but they will teach you and tell you and utter words from their heart. I'm simply telling you what has been passed down through the ages. Which he then illustrates in verses 11 to 19 with a couple of plant illustrations. Papyrus and reeds don't flourish without water in the same way Job, those who forget God, will perish. If you want to do well, then seek God. Well, is saying, not only does the wisdom of bygone ages tell us this, but nature itself, general revelation, illustrates it. So he concludes in verses 20 to 22, Seek God, be blameless, and you'll enjoy the abundant life. Your mouth will be filled with laughing, your lips with rejoicing. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame. Evildoers will not be upheld, but the place of the wicked will come to nothing, and yours will prosper. That's the gospel according to Bildad. There's no such thing as righteous suffering, so if you want to be happy and and prosper and avoid harm, follow God and he will make you healthy, wealthy, and happy. I hope you can see the problem with Bildad's speech. It doesn't leave room for the gospel, but it, it denies the possibility of righteous suffering. It leaves no room for a psalm like Psalm 44, where God's people suffer, though they are true to his covenant. That's what we sang before the sermon, which Bildad's religion has no room for, nor does it have room for a psalm like Psalm 71, which we read also, or Psalm 37, or Psalm 73, or many others, because he has no category for righteous suffering. He has one doctrine that he emphasizes, and everything else must fit into that grid, no exceptions. And that one doctrine is divine justice. But as you think about the many problems with Bildad's speech, there are many, I want to actually just sort of back up and ask the question whether Bildad's starting point even rightly understands what Job has said. He blurts out an insult in verse 2, saying Job's words are like a strong wind. In other words, Job, you're you're blowing hot air. You're not making any sense. And what it is that angers him so much, according to verse 3, is that he believes Job has charged God with subverting judgment and perverting justice. But if you read carefully through Job's lament in chapter 3 or his speech, in chapter 6 and 7, what you'll find is that Bildad has not heard Job rightly. Job did say in Job 3.23 that God has hedged him in. Job has asked lots of questions of God six times in chapter 3. He asks why. Uh, we see something of the same towards the end of chapter 7, which is, which is filled with questions. Where much of his lament is, is couched to the Lord in questions. Why are you treating me this way? He has said that God's arrows are within him and that God has been testing him every moment, but he has not said that God is unjust. In fact, he has continued to maintain God's holiness. He calls him the Holy One in Job 6.10. He believes that God will yet seek after him, Job 7.8 and Job 7.21, because he loves him. It is Job's belief in God's justice and holiness and goodness and love that make all of this so hard for him to reconcile. He has not denied God's justice, but his very lament to God testifies that he believes he will receive compassion from the Lord because God is just. So we have a little lesson here about listening carefully. About understanding the actual words of the one we critique and not assigning to them what we want to hear. We do this in arguments. We do this when we listen to sermons. We do this in political debate. We enter in thinking we know what the other will say, and instead of listening to them, we assign them what we want to hear and listen to ourselves. We need to be fair when we're engaged in debate, we need to be good listeners when we're giving counsel. Not just hearing what we want to hear and and, and saying what we want to say. The first problem with Bildad's speech is his listening. We err before we've even spoken if we do not listen. That's why James says, be quick to listen and slow to speak. Which he then in the very next verse relates to anger which is precisely what we see in verse 2 as Bildad's failure to listen leads to an angry outburst, which he no doubt would have called righteous anger, but he has not understood his opponent. What a lesson. How much of our anger and frustration comes from our failure to hear. Yet that's not the only problem With Bildad's speech, uh, the heart of his error, we see in verses five to seven where he says, if you seek God, you will prosper. Or if you seek God, he will, will prosper you. In other words, he's saying, Job, you need to repent so that you can get all your stuff back. If you seek God, he will prosper you. Sounds like a 21st century prosperity preacher. Repent, Job, so you can get all your stuff back. See the same at the end in in verses 20 to 22. God will not cast away the blameless, but if you repent, he will fill your mouth with laughing and your lips with rejoicing. Verse 6, your dwelling place will prosper, meaning your family, your property, all will be well. Do you see how this is precisely what the TV preachers who promise faith healing and financial blessing for tithing promise? God wants to lavish health, wealth, and happiness on the faithful, and therefore sickness and poverty reveal a lack of faith. That's what they say. That's what Bildad says. Bildad's version of the health and wealth gospel is uh, antithetical to the true gospel. To claim that the righteous never suffer is satanic because it fails to see the divine benefits of suffering. That God may be using it to draw you closer to Him. He may be using it to allow you to minister to others and comfort them with the comfort with which you have received from the Lord. He may be using it to picture in you in shadow form what He's going to do in sending His Son into the world, though blameless, and save us from our sin. That's what He's revealing in Job. He's revealing what He is going to do in His Son. Bildad says in verse 20, God will never cast away the blameless, by which he means God will not allow suffering to befall a blameless man. But again, like Eliphaz before him, he misses the heart of the universe in leaving no room for the blameless man to be cast off. What he does is he takes a biblical principle that God will bless the upright and he adds the word Immediately. And so he reads a a psalm like Psalm 1, blessed is the man who delights in God's law, whatever he does will prosper, he'll be like a tree planted by water, but the wicked will be driven away and he takes that to mean the wicked will be driven away immediately and the righteous will prosper now. But the blessed man of Psalm 1 is the same man of Psalm 2 against whom the nations rage and crucify that has no long-term perspective. He's like the people who misunderstood how a Nazarene with no place to lay his head to rest could be the Messiah. He can't be the Messiah. Look, look at the size of his church, 12 people. But later on, God would exalt him and give him a name above every other name. They were right to expect Glory. Wrong about when to expect it. The same is true of prosperity preachers today. They are right to expect health, but wrong about when to expect it. They're right to expect glory, but wrong about when to expect it. We could say their main problem is with their eschatology. They have taken God's promises about the future, and they've tried to pull them into the present. This is the problem with Bildad's gospel. Also, how he makes prosperity the goal. He denies the suffering of the blameless and urges Job to get right with God so he can prosper. The main goal is the prosperity of verses 6 and 7, which he returns in verses 20 to 22. And religion is merely a means to that end. So even though Job has not sinned and God himself has three times called him blameless, he wants Job to feign repentance to get his stuff back. He wants Job to make up a sin and use pretense as a way to prosperity. You realize Job would not be holding on to his integrity if he fabricates a sin to repent of as a shortcut to glory. Bildad here becomes the mouthpiece of Satan, trying as Satan will in Matthew chapter four to get God's servant to take a shortcut to glory, to skip the cross in order to seize the crown. Letting go of his integrity in order to achieve glory now. If Job listens to Bildad, Satan will have won. If Job makes up a sin to repent of on pretense in order to get his stuff back, he will prove Satan's point from Job chapter 1 that Job only worshiped God as a means to an end. But Job will not do that. Rather, like the Christ to come, he will suffer patiently, awaiting his crown at the proper God-appointed time, not skipping the cross in order to seize the crown. Satan is ever trying to get God's children to do that, to skip the cross, to skip suffering in order to seize the crown, to seize glory, and it does not honor God. Bildad makes prosperity the goal of religion. He denies righteous suffering, he does not listen, and we see in verses 8 through 10 what he bases all of this on, that his theology, his theology that makes prosperity the goal, his theology that denies righteous suffering is built on tradition, his proof for everything that he says is inquire of bygone ages and consider the things discovered by the father's. The Bildad here fails to recognize that we must not consider human writings, no matter how holy their authors may have been, equal to divine revelation. Nor put custom, nor majority, nor age, nor passage of time above the truth of God. This is the error of the Roman Catholic Church in the time of the Reformation. It is the error of traditionalists who will not budge on things they've gotten wrong because this is the way we've always done it. Lord, I want you to see how dangerous this is. Our only authority is the Word of God. And while creeds and confessions and church councils are good and carry authority, they do not carry the same weight of authority as the divinely inspired, inerrant Word of God. A tradition may simply be an error in its old age. We get stuck in a rut. We end up defending things that are contrary to the gospel if our main defense for what we believe and practice is this is the way we've always done it. Bill, that shows us the danger of such a way of thinking as it leads him to view the death of Job's sons as proof of their wickedness. And build that system based on tradition And Bildad's system where he looks at the death of Job's sons and says this must be based on their wickedness in that sort of system, based on tradition. What do you think Bildad would say of another son some 2,000 years later who would also die suddenly and horrifically? What do you think Bildad would say as he saw God's son hanging naked and bloodied on a tree? He would probably say he's dying for his sins God doesn't pervert justice. Beware the danger of basing your theology on tradition rather than divine revelation. God was speaking prophetically in the suffering of Job, but Bildad's eyes and ears were closed. He would not listen. He would not see. But all he had room for was tradition, which led him to a gospel that denied the gospel. Job 8 is a cautionary tale about the danger of traditionalism, about the danger of the prosperity gospel, about the danger of bad eschatology, about the danger of emphasizing one doctrine and trying to make everything else fit into that grid, about the danger of thinking that we are engaged in righteous anger when really we are the ones, verse 9, who were born yesterday and know nothing. And our anger is born of ignorance. These are the problems with the gospel according to Bildad. And lastly, I just want to look briefly at the prophetic irony of Bildad's speech. We've seen the point of Bildad's speech. We've considered the problems with Bildad's speech. Uh, Now I want to consider just for a moment the prophetic irony of Bildad's speech. Uh, For while a number of the things that he says are clearly false, some of them are quite true though not in the way he might have thought. For instance, verse 9, he is right that we know very little, but did not realize that his words there applied much more to himself than to Job. Or verse 2, he did not realize that his angry critique of windy words without end applied to himself. Now verses 3 and 4, he's right that God is not unjust, but he then tries to prove that by suggesting that Job's children sinned, the implication being that it would be unjust to make them die if they hadn't sinned. And so again, we see the irony that his very defense of God's justice by saying too much ends up charging God with injustice. Speech is filled with irony. We see it in verses 6 and 7 where, where he speaks of Job's latter ends. Ironically, Job 42 will indeed speak in that same language of Job's latter days as days of abundant increase, that compared to his, uh, his end, even his beginning from chapter 1 would be but small. But Bill, that is wrong in thinking that that latter end where God would awake for him would come through a change in Job's character. Like Eliphaz in chapter 5, verses 18 to 27, he speaks somewhat prophetically of how God will deliver him and multiply his descendants and bring him to the grave at a ripe old age. But he misses the fact that this does not come through Job fabricating a sin to repent of, but rather through God exalting his servant at the end. And one last uh, prophetic irony in 8, verse 22, when Bildad says, those who hate you will be clothed with shame. Your enemies will come to nothing. He does not realize that he himself has become Job's enemy. And so he speaks of the shame and folly that will be exposed in him in chapter 42 when God says, you have not spoken of me rightly as my servant Job has. Bildad will be shamed. And yet only for a moment... As God will then tell his servant Job to offer a sacrifice on Bildad's behalf, and he will not deal with Bildad according to his folly, Job 42, verse 8, because God's system is not as rigid as Bildad's, but God's is one of grace, unlike Bildad's. It's one of sacrifice and substitution, the very things that Bildad has denied his gospel taken to its logical end would lead to his condemnation. But thankfully, God's gospel is a very different one. Where even insensitive, angry comforters, even rigid traditionalists, even those who are quick to speak and slow to listen, even those who deny suffering and deny sacrifice, if they look to the son, the suffering servant to whom Job points, the tragically killed son to whom his children point, the patient interceding friend to whom Job points, they will prosper. Not necessarily in this life, but in the life to come. May God give us grace to not trust in the gospel according to Bildad, but in the gospel story that is being prefigured in the righteous suffering of righteous Job. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that in your word you give us pictures and shadows pointing forward to the work of your son, the tragically killed, suffering servant, the patient friend who bore much from those who meant well but denied the truth. Lord, we thank you for the patience of Job, even bearing with his friend as he poured salt in his wounds, and how his patient perseverance typifies, foreshadows, the patient perseverance of your son, who bore his cross and later received a crown. Father, we confess as we hear this gospel, according to Bildad, that we are prone to some of these same errors. We fail to listen, but hear what we want to hear. We get angry, not understanding that which we lash out against. We get angry and call it righteous, but like Bildad, our anger is because we have taken a single truth and so magnified it over against every other truth that we ourselves have actually missed the truth. Lord, we're guilty of the same kind of traditionalism as Bill Dadd. We're guilty of serving you and thinking that that places you in our debt and that we are owed a life of blessing. It's not only the prosperity theologians who make this error. But Lord, each of these errors are so subtle in the ways that they can creep into our minds and undermine the gospel. And so we pray that you would not only expose in us the ways that we are like Bildad, but you would forgive us for the ways that we are like Bildad. You would grant us eyes to see the true gospel of the one to whom Job points, and that as your spirit, the same spirit whom you poured out on your church on Pentecost Sunday, as your spirit gives us eyes to see the true gospel of the suffering servant to whom Job points, that your spirit would change us by that gospel into his likeness so that we too would patiently share with him in his suffering, would even be willing to patiently bear with our friends and loved ones who do harm by their speech. And Lord, as we share with Christ then in his suffering that your spirit would also cast our gaze heavenward, that we might look forward to that day in which we also will share with him in his glory. We pray in Jesus' name.